Hey everyone, welcome back to Policy Punchline. Here at the show, we interview scholars, policymakers, journalists, and entrepreneurs about urgent issues and frontier ideas in our world today.、Uh, I'm Princeton Junior Tiger Gao.、Uh, so this is our first interview in 2020, in the year of 2020. We're back、uh, from a very, very long break. Princeton has a very weird schedule. I personally went to India for three weeks,、uh, traveling to cities from Bangalore to Mumbai to New Delhi to Rishikesh. And、uh, when I was in India, I got the chance to connect with、uh, Newly Purnell. He is the Wall Street Journal tech correspondent in India.、Uh, we were supposed to meet up in New Delhi, but it was unfortunate that we didn't get to. And I decided to ask him for a Skype interview、uh, from Princeton. So now that I'm Reconnected with Newly, I hope to bring our listeners a very fascinating episode on the discussion of tech and business、uh, and policy and politics in India. And I think this will help us sort of open a new segment on India because I really got to interview a lot of people when I was there.、Uh, and also, there will be some wonderful guests as we come back to the states、uh, that we can talk to. So,、uh, without further ado,、uh, thanks so much for joining me in the studio, Newly. And just to give you a little, a little bit background about. Newly, so he、uh, is a Wall Street Journal tech correspondent in India.、Uh, he's already been there for three and a half years.、Uh, before that, he was a freelance journalist、uh, in Bangkok, and before that, he was in Singapore. So he's been in Asia since 2006,、uh, covering,、uh, having done a wide range of reporting, and、uh, probably the best person that we can talk to about tech and business in、uh, Asia and India. So thanks so much for taking the time to talk to me, Newly. My pleasure, Tiger. Thanks for having me on. Awesome.、Uh, so we always start with very broad and basic questions. So since we're talking about tech in India,、uh, would you mind giving us a quick interview、uh, overview of the India tech scene? It, it, it seems to me that India startup scene is very focused on meeting people's.、Um, Everyday needs,、uh, from online payments to e-commerce to ride-hailing to education. So,、um, nine out of the ten top unicorns in India by value are all in the sort of the online consumer space. So, are those the exciting innovations that we should、uh, focus our attention to, or are there any other niches that、uh, you think our listeners might not know about?、Uh, would love to hear your thoughts on on the general landscape. Sure. Well, I would say, Tiger, the most important thing. To recognize about the state of tech in in India is that it's very early on in its、um, in its、uh, phase of growth, and、uh, when you look at this country, it's massive. It's 1.3 billion people,、um, and you know, coming from countries where there's a really high internet penetration rate or a high adoption rate of some of these technologies, you might think, well, everybody's got smartphones all over the world, or everybody's already using Uber and buying things online. Well, in India,、um, of that population. Of 1.3 billion, only about 600 million people are online yet, and you know, hundreds of millions of people are still using、uh, old-fashioned mobile phones that aren't even smartphones.、Um, and so,、um, the number one、uh, key term, really, to keep in your mind when you think about India, is growth and the potential for growth. So, so yes, there are、uh, Indian startups that have come up that are. Using、uh, similar business models to Uber, whether it's ride-sharing or、uh, ride-sharing, or whether it's e-commerce, you know, kind of mimicking Amazon, but also those companies themselves, those big U.S. tech giants that have already conquered 
big developing markets are also spending billions of dollars to really get a piece of India. Um, so yes, it's true um, that there are um, uh, some innovations happening. There are, um, in many ways, um, many people throughout this country, it's very diverse, um, you know, lack reliable electricity, say. Um, or as I said, they, they still are on very simple cell phones. So it's a very um, uh, dynamic place where on the one end um, of the spectrum, you might have people who have never you know, sent an email or, uh, or browsed the internet. On the other, you have very sophisticated shoppers. So across that continuum, um, indeed, you have uh, Indian companies that are looking to, uh, to become the indisposable service for those people. And you have American and Chinese companies also coming in and trying to cater to this huge, diverse pool of users. But again, to go back to growth, don't ever uh, think that, that this, this, this internet economy in India is fully developed. There's still really a long way to go. It just seems that India has become the new battleground, right? Especially for American, Indian, and Chinese tech giants to kind of fight it out a lot. Out. This is a it's a very exciting scene over there. Yeah, very much. And you know, you you can you can see big pools of users in other countries, um, uh, big pools of people who you know are not online. Indonesia comes to mind, which has three hundred million people, and then many other countries. Uh, certainly, not everyone is online yet. But in terms of one single market, one single country, there's nowhere like India. Um, and so, indeed, you have Uber coming in, you have Amazon coming in, you have Facebook and WhatsApp. WhatsApp, uh, its biggest single market is India. They have four hundred million users. Just in India. Um, and so um, it's really important uh, market to some of these companies now, not necessarily in terms of uh, average revenue per user, for example, or revenues, but in terms of sheer number of users, it's it's crucial. And um, again, I'm probably going to sound like a broken record already, but, but growth. Um, so if you're Facebook or Google or Amazon and you want to know where your uh, you know, next hundreds of millions of, of users are going to come from down the line, you can't ignore India. Um, and indeed, yes, you're seeing Chinese uh, companies uh, really in the last few years start to make big inroads. The big, uh, the big one there is ByteDance. So TikTok is an enormous market for India. Um, you know, outside of our office, I work in Central Delhi, and all the time I see people, uh, you know, on the corner making, uh, you know, posing in front of shops or or other kind of monuments and making TikTok videos. So um, they're huge here. Um, so yeah, very much a battleground for any company, whether it's Indian or an international tech company that that cares about um, that cares about growth. That, that, uh, that sounds awesome um, because I, I you actually reported earlier in December um, about one notable deal that, that was happening in India is that Uber Eats is selling its Indian operation to competitor Zomato. Uh, I mean, Uber Eats is like burning around five hundred million dollars of losses a year, and is sort of a distant third uh, behind Swiggy and Zomato in in India in terms of the food delivery business. Um, so, so I'm very curious to hear your thoughts. Do you think the fact that Uber is pulling out of India, um, Uber Eats is pulling out of India, is in sort of any way indicative of American firms um, not really successfully adapting to certain parts of the Indian market? Because we've kind of seen the same thing with American tech giants trying to go into China. Uh, so, so I'd love to hear your thoughts on that front. Yeah, that's a good point. And um, and and Uber has has been Uber proper with its you know ride sharing business has been in India for a long time, and they're kind of viewed to be neck and neck with Ola, which is the the Uber of India, the homegrown Uber of India. Yeah. Um, but they were they were a latecomer to the food delivery business. So yeah, there's big Indian food delivery startups like Swiggy and Zomato who have been here for years and are 
extremely localized and have spent years building up their armies of delivery guys on motorbikes and um, in restaurants that they partner with. And so some analysts I talked to about uh, this deal said really the problem was that um, that Uber uh, came in too late and and that Swiggy and Zomato just had too much market share. Um, now, of course, you can't, you also have to say that this comes against the backdrop of Uber trying to um, trying to um, emphasize profitability. Yeah. Exactly. And so, you know, the CEO, Derek Khosrowshahi, said on, a, on an earnings call recently that if they can't be the number one or number two player in certain segments, um, then they're just going to get out. Um, and, and don't forget, Uber also um, got out of ride sharing in Southeast Asia by um, selling its operations for a piece of Grab, which is the, the Uber of Southeast Asia. And then before that, of course, they they got out of China and Russia. Yeah. So, uh, so yeah, it, definitely an issue for for these big companies that um, that may have extremely well developed and sophisticated business models and practices in their home markets, but then you come to a place that's so complicated, like in and it can be very hard to, to replicate that. Sounds great. So I'll get into the cultural sort of factors and business practices slightly later. But uh, it's, it seems to be a pretty scary vision to me because uh, you got all those American Chinese tech giants tr- kind of fighting it out in India. What about the domestic companies? Do you do you are we seeing? I mean, we're seeing some unicorns, but do you think real innovations are taking place? Do you think a lot of those competitors are are having an edge compared to their American Chinese counterparts? Uh, are are you worried in any sense? Well, I think it's it's certainly true that the government is taking notice that uh, you know that these big American, particularly American companies, are dominating. So I mentioned yeah. the uh, prevalence of WhatsApp, of course, owned by Facebook. Um, you know, Amazon. I mentioned Amazon spending five billion dollars here. They've announced some time ago that they're they're coming out all guns blazing. And but I think one moment that really. Um, that really uh, sort of made people pay attention was in uh, 2018 when Walmart purchased Flipkart, which was the the Amazon of India, for 16 billion dollars. It was Walmart's biggest ever acquisition, and they did it to get a piece of this big, growing market. Well, um, all of a sudden, 80 percent, by some estimates, of all e-commerce activity uh, in in India are controlled by Walmart and uh, and Amazon. And so I think that was one of several things that have happened that have made policymakers certainly take note and say, hold on a second here. We have this burgeoning internet economy. We're still early in our journey compared to the U.S. or China. Um, and and whereas the U.S. has been open, has, has, has given birth to these big companies who have then expanded abroad, and whereas China has said, um, we don't want foreign players to be able to operate here. We want yeah. to foster our own uh, ecosystem. I think India is starting to say, Maybe we can have a balance because we not necessarily sure we want to live with just giving up uh, our entire ecosystem to to foreign players, um, particularly in the way that the American firms have been dominant. So worry, I wouldn't say I'm I'm not worried because um, uh, you know I just I just look at the facts as they are. And I don't have any you know particular concern, but certainly policymakers are 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 seeing what's happening and and certainly. You know, certain segments of the population. Um, I mean, some people point out that the government seems to be responding to a, a very important uh, group of constituents, which is um, uh, small shop owners. So, you know, retail in India is extremely unorganized, and so many people buy their goods 
from mom and pop shops. And there are, you know, millions of people who work at these shops across India and they have associations who are complaining to the government that, hey, you know, our customers who used to come to us to buy to buy XYZ, now they're buying them on, on Amazon or now they're buying them on Flipkart, which is owned by Walmart. So um so so for sure it's it's there's growing awareness that um that 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 this big important uh tech market that could be huge for the years to come is being is being dominated by american players for sure totally because i i read this article you wrote um earlier last month in january um that india's antitrust watchdog ordered a probe into whether amazon and walmart um sort of have violated competition laws and you can already kind of see uh the the growing awareness in that sense Exactly. Exactly. And they're using, you know, um, the government, to be fair, the government says we want everybody to play by the rules. And they, in a nutshell, say that um, that that some of the American players are are exploiting loopholes. Um, and so they say we have to stand up for the rule of law and for our constituents. And, and um, you, know, you hear a lot of talk these days about data sovereignty. Uh, so taking a, a playbook from other countries that have talked about the importance of uh, owning our own citizens' data. So, uh, so yeah, the antitrust, and, and so there's also regulations being talked about for data localization, for data privacy, um, other elements that would that would make life more challenging for international tech players here. Uh, I, I think it's just uh, the, the China experience was somewhat different because they basically, as you mentioned, didn't want any foreign players to come in. And when mm-hmm. Google was there, um, I don't even know if Chinese, I mean, I think it was pretty reasonable to assume that the Chinese government definitely helped Baidu here and there uh, and, and mm-hmm. got Google out of there. And, and now Facebook and I mean, Amazon had to basically sell its operations to local competitors and e-commerce is really dominated by Alibaba and JD.com. Right. So so Amazon doesn't have any kind of presence really. Uh, exactly. And, and even when it comes to music, right? You don't have Apple Music or Spotify in China at all. So mm-hmm. pretty much everything is dominated by local Chinese companies. I can't really think of any American company uh, that is, has has a major presence in, in China. Uh, so, I, so I don't know. It's, it's really interesting. Uh, we'll, we'll have to see how, how things play out in India. Yeah, and I would just say briefly, that's another reason that India is important is that some of these companies look at the only other billion person economy there is and say, well, we, <laughs> we couldn't win there. Or you know, in some cases they say, well, we don't want to go in because although we would be allowed, we don't want to be uh, uh, subject to having to mandatorily share data with the government there or what for whatever reason. Um, that that means that India is another big battleground, a really important, big, huge pool of users that these companies don't want to get shut out from. Um, I was reading uh, Super Pumped, the book about mm-hmm. Travis uh, Kalanick and, and the rise and fall of Uber. And in it, it just says that he was so... Um, into this vision of coming, going to China and finally becoming the American tech company that is able to mm. conquer the Chinese market. And he didn't end up doing it because of all kinds of trouble. But uh, don't you think there's kind of a, a scary kind of vision? I mean, uh, I guess sociologists and anthropologists might call it, I, I don't know, neocolonialism when it comes to tech and businesses, you know, having uh, American giants entering uh, new markets, making tons of acquisitions, using very mature business models to kind of um, occupy those market shares. So, so I, I don't know. It's, it seems pretty scary from a social perspective as well, I guess. 
Yeah, I mean, like I said, policymakers are, are certainly using that kind of language. I mean, you hear um, people talk about, like I said, day to day the sovereignty, or uh, you know, you hear people talk about it in nationalistic terms, like you know, the data of Indians should yeah. stay in India, and we don't want you know um, companies, our companies, to be overrun. Um, now, on the other hand, I would say if you talk to most consumers, um, I don't think most people really care. You know, they know that WhatsApp is. Um, is useful and uh, and and for example, and they might not know it's owned by Facebook. And you know, Facebook has had its own issues um, in India, but I don't know that people really. I'm not sure how many consumers ultimately say I'm going to use Ola because it's Indian, and I'm not going to use Uber. Um, I think many times. Yeah, I think many times. Um, you know, I'm not just not to say that that never happens, but I think uh, a bigger, much bigger factor is ease of use. Um, price and um, um, you know just efficiency. So I think a lot of people who you know use Amazon, for example, in India, um, you know they yeah, Amazon has actually done a, qu- a pretty good job of, of localizing and and making itself um, appear not not willfully. I mean not not deceptively try to appear Indian, but they've localized with Hindi language and uh, uh, you know advertisements. And in fact, you might have seen Jeff Bezos was just here. Um, uh, a few yeah, weeks ago yeah. and was, yeah, you know, wearing, um, um, Nehru jacket and, um, you know, <laughs> someone he, called him Modi jacket, he, you know? <laughs> yeah, 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 he, yeah, exactly. Yeah. And he, you know, he, he came and, and spoke in very glowing terms about how, um, important he thinks the U S India relationship is. And, um, you know, he really, you know, he, he was, he was very much into the India experience. Um, so, uh, so I think consumers though, um, you know, really probably value more than the nationality uh, of the founders of the company or who the shareholders are, where the shareholders are from. I think more than that, they're probably motivated by cost and efficiency and how good the service is. Got you. So to sum up our this sort of segment of discussion, I, I think it just seems that from the consumer perspective, it's more about the ease of use, about the pricing. From the policymaker perspective, they're slightly iffy on on not feeling too comfortable that these tech giants are immediately stepping in. But but they're also not exactly saying we want to be protectionist and we don't want any foreign players. We just want to uh, grow our domestic businesses. So it seems to be a, a relatively healthy balance in that regard it's not too bad yeah i think it has been and i think um i think the companies um you know not sure how open they would be i mean we certainly ask them for our stories and they they often don't have don't have anything really official to say but i think that if they were to be frank they would probably say look you know uh um, india has a history of um not being you know particularly open to foreign investors and it's it's known to be tumultuous from a regulatory standpoint and we you know nobody investing billions of dollars in india thinks it's going to be like investing billions billions of dollars in a company in singapore you know i mean it's a, it's a difficult place for foreign companies to do business and they would say look we're in it for the long haul and there are going to be bumps along the road but um but we're going to deal with them as they come along Awesome, awesome. Uh, uh, Neely, why don't we take a quick step back and maybe talk about some specific uh, innovations or specific companies that you might find doing really fascinating stuff. I know there's Paytm, which is kind of doing a lot of, uh, is it fair to say it's kind of the PayPal of India, doing a lot of payment stuff, um, or, or like a yeah. WeChat Pay. Uh, there, um, There's Flipkart that we, we talked about, which is sort of in the e-commerce space. Um, any other names that, that you think our listeners should definitely know about? 
Yeah, I think, well, I think yeah, to go back to, to, um, Paytm, um, yeah, they're, I think that they, they have been one company, one big startup, uh, that people would point to as saying they're doing something unique and innovative. Um, although what they're doing is, um, is similar to what happened in China with, um, I guess it would be Alipay or, or WeChat pay, exactly. um, facilitating, yeah, facilitating, uh, mobile payments between, um, between, uh, individuals and companies. And, um, you know, uh, there's this term leapfrogging. Um, you know, when it, when if a traditional sector doesn't work well and a new technology comes along yeah. and does it better, oftentimes there's an opportunity to leapfrog. And I think they've been a good example of um, companies that have taken advantage of extremely low usage of credit cards in India. So it's still a very cash dominant society. And um, there was an instance a few years ago where uh, Prime Minister Modi um, ruled out the, the highest denomination currencies to try to get rid of corruption. This idea that people are hoarding um, vast sums of money in big bills and not putting them in the bank because then they'd be responsible for that those, that ill that ill gotten money. So he said, "Let's get rid of all these big bills." Well, it triggered a cash crunch, and there were long lines at ATMs, and so um, and so a lot of people downloaded um, Paytm, and 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 you you could then load money onto a wallet um, and then pay for things you know digitally. So I think they're one. I mean, one that um, people are talking a lot about these days, um, which is also backed by South Bank of Japan, is Oyo, which started as a um, essentially a hotel aggregation service or one that would go to small um, mom and pop hotels and standardize them and get them online and allow people to book um, rooms there has gone into now a big global operation where they're um, you know, talking about being the world's uh, biggest um, hotel chain one day, and they've got their own properties. They bought a hotel in Las Vegas, so they're one that that also people are talking about. Um, but in terms of um, you know, big, innovative, um, you know, huge leaps uh, in technology, I think India's um, while it's long been known for um, for having you know uh, smart tech executives all over the world, I think what you see in the model from America is that you need this um, these generations of uh, entrepreneurs to develop over time, and um, uh, you know the internet gives rise to, rise to certain technologies, and then people learn from one another. You have innovations and people riffing off one another, and I think that it's the, the entire internet economy is much younger in India, so there probably hasn't been a chance uh, enough for for some of that, you know, more deeply innovative stuff. And most of the big tech companies we've seen here are, um, are sort of, uh, mo- you know, um, kind of models of, uh, companies that have existed elsewhere, but, but certainly Paytm, Oyo, um, are, are doing stuff that people are paying attention to, um, that seems to be, um, you know, somewhat pioneering and adapting certain technologies that exist to the Indian market. Totally makes sense. Uh, I'm glad you brought up uh, the the tech executive part because I actually totally forgot to uh, write up any questions on that regard. But I really wanted to hear your thoughts on this because there are so many really famous um, uh, Indian executives in Silicon Valley. Sundar Pichai, Mm -hmm. Satya Nadella, like like those are people that that kind of proved how Indian Americans or minorities could make it in in Silicon Valley. Um, But but it also seems that there isn't a sense among the uh, Indian American immigrants, at least who whom I talk to, or, or second generation kids here, who feel like, oh, I want to go back to India to become an entrepreneur. Um, so, so mm-hmm. I don't know, because because I would talk to some of the most brilliant computer science um, in American friends on campus in Princeton, uh, and I say, do, do, do you have the, do you ever want to go back to India to help your country or your? your and then they say, not really. I mean, America is my country, and I just want to be in yeah. the Bay, you know, <laughs> the Bay Area. <laughs> right. Sure. Sure. 
Well, I think people, I think people, uh, you know, want to go often where the best opportunity is. And so there may not have been in this example of, uh, say in China where people like, uh, uh, you know, Jack Ma spent some time in the U S or, or was aware of, you know, entrepreneurs in the U S and, and really wanted to, to build for his own country. Uh, okay. Okay. He did not grow up in the U S he's, he's, he's not Chinese American. He's, he's born and <laughs> raised in America. I know, but the sense that he wanted to create, um, for America, what was happening in the dot-com era in the U.S., he, sorry, that he wanted to create that for China. Yeah, I'm not sure. Um, you do see some some uh, returnees, um, some uh, maybe people in their, say, 40s or 50s who have had successful tech careers in America. Maybe, they, maybe they're mostly born in India and then, you know, educated here and then worked uh, for 20 years in the U.S. and then decide that they want to, you know, they've got some wealth and they want to create their own startup or they want to start investing as a VC. And so oftentimes their parents are getting older and they want to be back closer to home. Um, but I think, um, I think probably the biggest, um, driver there is that if you're just like, if you're, uh, you know, from India or China and you want to go where you, you can get the best education and, and work for the best companies. Um, if you want to work in tech in America or, or you want to work in tech and you want to be an entrepreneur and a founder, it's really hard to beat America because of the, uh, educational system, because of the, um, the network of entrepreneurs in Silicon Valley, um, and also a huge domestic market in its own right, 300 million people. So, um, so I think that you have to have a real drive and desire. And also, you know, you have to feel like you could execute your dream. And I think there are still some structural barriers, um, in India that might prevent people, some of the stuff, you know, like the difficulty in starting a business or, um, the difficulty in attracting talent, um, uh, or, or other issues that, uh, you know, just from a, from a health standpoint, a pollution standpoint, I think a lot of those factors are probably keeping people uh, from returning to India. Uh, to um, totally. That's a factor as well. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, speaking of those kind of policies that, that aim to encourage small business, because you were just talking how how in India there are a lot of small entrepreneurs per se, sort sort of the mom and pop shops, and I know that India has is, has been famous for IT outsourcing, and, and the government has actually instituted a lot of uh, protectionist policies that sort of aim to curb outsourcing work and provide opportunities for more local and small businesses to grow. So. Are we seeing a, a growth in small businesses like Prime Minister Modi has really hoped for, or um, are the big IT outsourcing names like Tata and and Infosys still dominating the scene? So, what, what is it like uh, for for the small entrepreneurs in India? I think, um, yeah, certainly Infosys, um, TCS, Wipro, um, you know, some of these other um, IT services firms are still dominant. And of course, don't forget, they had their own issues with uh, H-1B visas um, when, you know, <laughs> President Trump came to power and he started talking about yeah. um, trying to do away with these kind of visas. Uh, so they, they had their own headwinds. Um, but yeah, certainly, um, certainly they're still powerful. Um, I think there was genuinely... And I don't know how much of this was tied to Prime Minister Modi. I think some of it was um, several years ago. More enthusiasm, uh, optimism about um, the potential for uh, for Indian startups to, um, to to dominate India and to take their visions abroad. Um, and I think you you saw this reflected several years ago in the amount of VC that was pouring in from international investors into Indian startups. Um, and I think that that's that's tapered off a bit. 
Um, of course, it could just also be that as companies develop and they gain you know, mar- more market share, there's less opportunity for, for newcomers. Um, but I do think um, in the business community at large, there is some worry that um, India's economy's uh, growth is slowing. And so, you know, before you can even talk about uh, developing vibrant um, startups, you have to talk about the economy as a whole growing. And I think that there is some disillusionment in the business community here that Prime Minister Modi, who don't forget, you know, around the time he was elected, he he went and in Japan in his speech to investors and said, look, India is known for its red tape. I want it to be known for rolling out a red carpet to foreign investors. And um, and I think as as um, as in, as as Modi has spent more time in power and as people have seen um, a, a lack of some of these big, uh, bold uh, pro business moves, which he was known for in his home state, they've seen that um, sort of peter out and the economy slowing. And probably there's larger worries more about um, e- India's economic trajectory um, and and what will happen with India's economy overall. Um, because I, I, because you just mentioned Prime Minister Modi's sort of pro-business agenda. I mean, he's been known for kind of pushing for the economy, starting the you know, the toilet revolution, um, and, and and being very pro-business to for for investors. But there are also kind of uh, a, a lot of political tension and uncertainty, right? I mean, I, I read that Wall Street Journal reported how India accounts for. 67% of the world's documented internet shutdowns, uh, I think in 20, uh, 2019, and did so recently to sort of prevent the large-scale public protests against the Citizenship Amendment Act, which we can talk about as well in a bit. So it seems that, is this in any way representative of a larger hostility to kind of internet freedom or, or personal liberty when it comes to, to tech usage uh, that will very much scare off the, the foreign investors? Or are we not really seeing seeing uh, the enthusiasm dying down yet. So I, I don't know. What, what's the sentiment like yeah. right now? Well, I, I would say the concerns about some of the curbs on the internet are um, probably more um, more felt by people worried on free speech grounds or on um, uh, you know censorship grounds than on um, the effect that it could have on the internet economy. So just to give you an example, um, you know the, uh, the some of the curbs on the internet they have affected uh, people in certain parts of the country, and some some small startups have said that they've affected their business. But overall, the vast majority of people would not have seen their e-commerce or uh, you know or online communications or any of these activities that they depend on interrupted. So until we see that um, you know censorship of the internet, blockages, um, you know, in some in sometimes of the protest even. Um, uh, like 3G and 4G mobile internet service was cut. Um, until we see those kinds of um, moves actually affecting commerce or the the, the availability of the services in a in a really long long time frame, I don't think that companies will be too worried, uh, at least from a business operations standpoint. But yes, from an from an ideological or from a free speech standpoint. Certainly, people are, um, are find it odd that the world's biggest democracy is shutting down the internet so much. And you know, the government um, says we basically need to do this to stop people from protesting. So you know, there was this controversial move that was made in Kashmir, which is yeah. India's only uh, Muslim majority state, um, uh, to take away someone's autonomy.
economy. And so there was, um, you know, this wide scale internet shutdown there, which has continued to some extent. Um, and so, yeah, people are, people are, are, I think rightly pointing out that, um, you know, these seem to be, um, contradictory to say we're, you know, the world's biggest democracy and we have a free press, but then to be, um, instituting these wide scale shutdowns. Um, not only is it, ideologically problematic, but also actually hurts the people on the ground because when there are protests or when there are, um, uh, you know, other kinds of turmoil, um, people, it actually ends up exacerbating fears, um, when you can't communicate with your loved ones. Um, so yeah, that's, it's been, it's an issue for sure. Newly, just to go a little bit deeper here, I mean, even to get a slightly more philosophical, do you think it's just because people are unaware of the, the extent to which um, the, the potential harm that the Modi administration could cause or it's just that the, the, there isn't really a harm? Because it seems from what you're saying is that, oh, we, we kind of recognize how uh, it kind of tramples on the free speech part where those shutdowns are kind of bad. Uh, but it's not having like an extreme sort of if negative effect on the sentiment, on the, on the investment outlook for, for tech companies, for the growth. Uh, so it seems that people aren't really worried yet. So I don't think um, the, the executives or startup entrepreneurs wake up every morning kind of worried oh, what what is the government going to do to us in, in, in a month or so um, so is, is it just because people aren't aren't having that foresight uh, or that worry is is overblown or as you said nobody really should care about this thing in, in a sense well I I think people um, you know people it's hard for me to put myself in the minds of other internet entrepreneurs but um, you might ask the question well what can they do about it uh, they can't do much about it except for to <laughs> to 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 deal with it. That's true. And so I don't think there have been many worries. I don't think that many people are suggesting that that these internet outages will uh, will increase across the country unless there's you know bigger and even more massive you know country ride protests. Um, so you know many people might just think well they're gonna they're gonna be lifted eventually. Um, and I think I think. Um, you know, people probably just, uh, you know, I'm sure there are people on different, uh, different sides of the coin, but, um, I, am sure that some people feel that the government has a legitimate right to, um, to take steps to try to curb, uh, preemptively protests. Um, and, um, and so again, yeah, if you're now, if you're in Kashmir and you're an internet entrepreneur there or a citizen there, you probably really do feel like this is um, extremely troublesome, um, and you're going to have to deal with it. But, but given you know India's massive population and geographic diversity, uh, the size, um, I, I mean, in terms of global, you know, or huge, big scale startups, I don't think that the many of the internet outages have had much of an impact on their operations. Um, but again, hard to get inside the ideological to what the founders are thinking. Yeah. Um, but I think, but I think from a business standpoint, there there hasn't been huge, you know, um, huge interruptions. That that totally makes sense. So so I I I, I totally see how uh, entrepreneurs would not feel very comfortable in, in that sense, but still believe that the Modi administration is ultimately pro business and and that the this is a fairly welcoming environment for entrepreneurs and for tech companies to grow. So, uh, yeah, that that, that makes sense. Uh, but I. But I also do think that India has a lot of policy challenges when it comes to, I mean, we, we were mentioning antitrust on one hand, but also another thing was fake news, because I uh, read how for the past two years there have been many instances of, of WhatsApp uh, forwarding messages and spreading false news and creating rumors in India. And um, last year, 
uh, I read some reports about how some people mistook some Muslims to be child smugglers, uh, which led to multiple instances of mob lynching in India. Um, and, and online misinformation, I think, in the U.S., we're a little bit more aware of it, given the Facebook uh, kind of election scandal. But I feel like in countries like China, uh, on, on WeChat, for example, or in India on WhatsApp, um, it, the, the awareness is probably not there yet, right? I don't, I don't know. What, what is it like for, for the regulation on that mm-hmm. front? Yeah, well, it's that's a great example of how the rising, you know, um, usage of the internet uh, is is um, crashing up against sort of uh, government internet regulations in India and people's growing awareness of what some of these um, platforms, um, some of the, the benefits and uh, harms. So, in the case of WhatsApp, um, again, to go back to the prevalence of it, I mean, people who don't use email or don't use Facebook or don't buy things online or don't stream music or videos, they almost always use WhatsApp. I mean, they, they sell some smartphones that are basically, they call them smart feature phones. They're basically just uh, regular candy bar shaped smartphones with regular buttons, no touch screen, but they have some mobile connectivity and what people use them for is mostly for WhatsApp. So um, this is a platform that is just completely widespread in India. Um, and um, and one issue that that has that has um, occurred here in India is that um, viral false news is very easy to spread. Uh, and so some people who have actually worked on government campaigns for political parties have said, we use this as a weapon, as like a bazooka to just blast out um, uh, this, you know, uh, not always fake, sometimes just just uh, you know, uh, legitimate election information, but it's used as a mass broadcast medium. Um, and so there have been instances, yes, where um, uh, news uh, hoaxes, rumors have flourished on WhatsApp and have led to the deaths of some people. And so um, the government has uh, has has said repeatedly, WhatsApp, you are responsible for this. So just kind of like out in America, people are saying Facebook. You know, you created this 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 huge, powerful machine for distributing content, and and you, Mark Zuckerberg, you want to say, well, it's up to users. You're not responsible. We're not responsible for what people post. Well, you should be responsible for it. In that same way, people, policymakers are here are saying, well, we don't care if you say it's encrypted and you don't have access to it. You are making money, um, uh, or you're you know increasing engagement of your product globally in India on the backs of our users, and so you better find a way to deal with it. And so, um, you know, WhatsApp says uh, they've introduced some changes, product changes that have made it harder to uh, to forward messages. They've 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 undertaken public service announcements where they try to teach people how to understand, um, you know, what's 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 a hoax and what's not. Um, but the big issue for WhatsApp is that um, you know they 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 have for two years now almost had a um, a beta. Uh, experimental peer-to-peer payment pro, uh, service, um, which they rolled out. I've used it. It's great. They were only allowed to roll it out to a certain number of people, and then they were supposed to get government approval to go countrywide, which could be a huge, big deal for a company that, um, for in its biggest market, that wants to make money. Um, and uh, the government's blocking them, and they say. Um, you know, uh, we, we want to be able to um, make you responsible to trace who is creating some of these messages. Um, so, yeah, this, this idea that, um, that the tech company should have to be responsible um, and that governments are going to make them responsible um, or at least try, that's, that's really – India is a real uh, point, uh, you know, real ground zero for that, um, especially in a place where so many people are new to the internet. Uh, would you say that the Modi administration – 
might abuse certain power when it comes to uh, tech regulations. Like, I mean, I guess a lot of people might be concerned that uh, the, the, the the sort of regulation on, on saying uh, you need to let me know who's sending that message or who's behind this m- misinformation campaign, whatever, could lead to further expansion of the nationalist and authoritarian tendencies that we're already seeing. I don't know if that's a legitimate concern, so I want to hear your thoughts on that front. Yeah, well, I would say um, definitely privacy advocates I've talked to are are worried. Um, and, you know, people point out that uh, the, the kind of natural tendency for any, whether it's a corporation or a government, when they have access to data, even if they say, we don't think we need access to it later, let's store it anyway. And then you never know down the line, someone might want to take advantage of that. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, there was a, there was a, a big um, and controversial pro- uh, project um, called Adhar, which is the Hindi word for foundation, um, started several years ago and it was created. It's the world's largest biometric database. And so, you know, over a million, uh, sorry, over a billion of India's 1.3 billion people have been entered into this uh, biometric database with iris scans, fingerprints, uh, photos. And it was created as a radical solution to try to address the problem of uh, lack of identity. Uh, and so, you know, we take for granted that you might have a driver's license or a birth certificate or a social security card, but many people in India don't have those things. Um, they don't have any official documentation. And so um, it was created as a way to try to legitimize um, these people and get them into the system to receive welfare benefits, that sort of thing. So, um, and the government has said repeatedly, we don't give law, law enforcement access to this. Um, we don't, it's secure. That was another big worry um, that people, that hackers could get into it and get people's biometrics data. Um, and so, yeah, there, there definitely is a concern that as the government um, implements policies that in the eyes of many people who are out in the streets protesting, say, um, that seem to be marginalizing Muslims, for example, yeah, there is a fear that um, that that the government could try to um, could try to use certain technologies, um, you know, to its advantage um, in ways that they wouldn't admit um, uh, behind the scenes, for sure. Um, what's your read on on the Modi administration in the sense that I think uh, when we talk about those policies and we're often kind of um, situated in in the context of this administration having quote-unquote nationalist and authoritarian tendencies Uh, and I think a lot of people are worried about that and against that backdrop in that context people kind of worry about the tech regulations and stuff like that but it kind of all came from the starting point that uh, a lot of people are not very happy with the way Modi has handled Sort of the some of some of the democratic debates and stuff like that. So, um, but but when you look at him, do you do you look at this administration and think uh, there are some dangerous tendencies? But overall, it's it's a country, it's a government that believes in democracy and and they still very much hope hope to uphold those values. Uh, or do you kind of see a slippery slope there? Because I I think there are countries that we kind of gradually already recognizing that that are downright authoritarian at this point. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, I think it, that's a very difficult question. I think, um, I think if let's look at what Modi has done and what's led to the protests. And I think, um, speaking to people, you know, who, who follow these political issues closely, um, I think that there, yes, there's certainly concern that when he won re-election, um, that he could undertake, um, you know, policies that seem to, uh, be pursuing a, a Hindu nationalist agenda, 
Um, and so, uh, you know, if you're Muslim and you see some of these things happening, whether it's Kashmir or some other issues, uh, this national citizenship registry, um, the idea that uh, India is going to um, give um, citizenship um, or, you know, um, or allow people to come in from different countries uh, if they say they're a victim of um, uh, religious persecution for all religions, essentially, except for Islam, I think you would look at Modi and say, um, he was linked um, uh, to some troubling things um, in the past. His own background um, uh, would indicate that this is what he and his the people around him want. Um, and now, from the government standpoint, I have to say they say we're we're addressing real issues um, on the ground to try to make India secure and to try to um, and to try to. Uh, you know, increase India's economic growth, whether it's tech or some of this other stuff. So um, it's very difficult to say because um, we don't know what's going to happen next. But um, I do think um, I can imagine if you were in the shoes of people who ha have seen these things happen, that you you could be concerned by it. Yes. Okay, I I think that 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 that's a wonderful way to kind of um, put all this tied all this together. I, I I totally see what you're saying. I guess there is worry and there's growing concern. And I think it's good that people are having that kind of awareness. Um, and and but but it's I guess still somewhat too early to reach conclusion about what this administration fundamentally is all is is about. Um, yeah. I don't know because because I mean they have a huge majority the 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 majority mm -hmm. party BJP led by uh, Modi they have like what ninety percent or seventy percent of the seats in 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 Congress so uh, it's it's just uh, absurd how much power they have. Yeah, yeah. I think I think um, you know I think the 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 what I would say is um, an equally large concern though would be the economic development of the country. Um, and so you're seeing growth s slow. And so what you need for a country to develop uh, economically and for um, people's lives to improve is for, um, for families and people to be getting richer. And so um, it's been taken for granted that there would be steady uh, economic growth in the country. Um, and if, if that slows, um, uh, then, then I think the country is is really in trouble. And there's been some very interesting work by uh, the Belgian economist Jean Drez and Amartya Sen, uh, economist, um, looking at um, how, despite India's continued economic growth, human development indicators, whether it's infant mortality or or um, uh, access to education or um, those sorts of things have fallen behind neighbors like Bangladesh and Nepal. And so while the economy is growing and there are more billionaires than ever in India, um, it would seem that a lot of those benefits are not trickling down to the poorest people. Um, and so, so I think that's a big worry as well. Um, it may not be as sexy and it may not be in the headlines as much, um, but, but if India's uh, you know, growing economy isn't growing so fast, then those millions and hundreds of millions of people who have yet to be to reap those economic rewards, if they're not going to get them, then I think that's a really that's a really existential question as well. Yeah. So how is the economy doing? I've heard rumors that it's not even growing at all. Uh, I mean, it was growing at like seven percent or nine percent a couple years ago. Uh, a tremendous yeah. growth, but but now it's just uh, uh, it's not t t quote unquote copying the China experience when it comes to uh, right. leapfrogging and economic development. So, uh, when you are in India, do you feel like uh, the economy is really really slowing down? 
Well, it is growing. It's growing at a slower pace. Um, and, and yeah, and I think, you know, some of my colleagues have done some really great reporting going out into, um, into smaller cities um, and villages and talking to people there uh, about um, a lack of jobs or um, worries about the future. Um, it's not too palpable, I have to say, here in New Delhi. Um, you know, it's, uh, I haven't seen too many examples of, say, uh, you know, workers who are uh, who would be living here in Delhi, but you know, whose families are in other places, deciding to go home because they can't get work in Delhi. Um, it's still, you know, obviously a very dynamic and, and, and busy place. Um, but yeah, you you do hear um, you you do hear worries about um, where the economy is going, um, and especially now uh, with trade war between U.S. and China, um, and you know whether globalization may be slowing what India's place and in all of that is, um, certainly it's, it's an issue. Okay. That, that, that totally makes sense. Um, I, I never got the ch- chance to ask you about the, the cultural factors. Yes. Yeah, so I just want to quickly touch on that. Cause, uh, when we talk about India's sort of gl- glamorous tech scene, there's a lot of critique about the reality behind it. You know, the long work hours, the lopsided hierarchy, mismanagement, unhealthy culture, the sort of um, sexism and and those issues. So um, I I guess it's fairly common issues for startups in developing countries, but are are we seeing more discourse and improvement in India at all? Uh, What do you you think of it? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, um, I think... Uh, obviously, there's a very there's India tends to be quite patriarchal, changing over time. Um, but still, um, I would say still I haven't seen statistics, but I imagine the vast majority of uh, startup founders are still men. And so I think you'd have to look at um, uh, whether you could expect that to be any different than in other corporations. Um, but I, I I do. I do think uh, it is changing, and I think um, you know maybe 20 years ago, people would have said young people might have tried to tell their parents, "I just graduated from an uh, you know an Indian Institute of Technology or another top university, and I'm going to go work for a tech firm." And, and probably in years past, they might have um, they might have been told, "No, you should go work for the government, or you should go work for a bank, or some other solid uh, and reliable." Standpoint. I think probably because as people around the world have become uh, more aware of the power and um, the prestige of working for big global and domestic tech companies, I'm sure that there that some of those people who would have been criticized by their family members for for wanting to go work for a startup, that's probably less. Um, now, whether that's uh, equally the same for women as men, I don't know. Um, but but certainly, yeah, it's hard to it's hard to isolate. Um, these kind of uh, gender roles and trends from the economy as, at large, um, but but yeah, it's 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 that's um, it's still an issue. Um, gender equality and uh, uh, getting more women into the workplace, workplace generally, not just at startups, but across the board, is still still a problem in India. Um, it's just so interesting because we went uh, as a group of American kids, you know, like like twelve kids from from Princeton, uh, to go see India, and we talked to the people there, uh, and and you can see the sort of dissonance when it comes to 
understanding on gender issues, I guess, because the uh, the American kids we 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 have like PhDs on sociology or anthropology. You know, the, those ladies, minority women from the U.S. who are so brilliant at discussing some of those uh, historical issues and injustices. Uh, and you talk to really brilliant Indian women as well, but 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 they don't feel it that way. They feel like I I want to stay home uh, to to help my husband or um, so so it, it it seems that obviously there are historical issues and injustice and, and that's sort of happened um, but I think f- it seems to me that from a lot of Indian people's perspective those are not issues at all they, 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 um, for them it was just a natural way of living and uh, they very much appreciate it to some extent and uh, the Americans looking from our perspective were like oh what do you mean that's that's so bad so I, I, I don't know so so I yeah. haven't reached any conclusion on, on that front yet I need to read more about those those things yeah i would say i would say tiger your experience probably reflects um something that's been really eye-opening for me which is the importance of visiting and better yet living in the place to really understand the complexities um and you know i had i had uh visited india several times before actually moving here and um but you know even just spending a couple months and and um going through the, the things whether it's setting up a bank account or trying to navigate the city or uh, travel throughout the country or um you know get get things done during the day that gave me a, a whole under a big an understanding that i could never could have had otherwise of the complexity and sometimes people ask me you know what do people not get about india or they or they you know give me their latest theory on on india and um and i and i and i i always i always return to this idea that india is complicated it's almost like you know how facebook used to have the status update is complicated it's kind of like you know india is just a complex and massively complicated um and dynamic place that varies from village to village to city to city um to language to religion and um and i think a lot of times people make the mistake in thinking about india's economic development comparing it to china's and thinking that they're going to be simple they're going to be similar um but in many ways India is a country that could be 15 different countries. It's not one country where most people speak the same language like China is and have similar customs. Um, in India, it's just, it's it's more diverse and uh, more complicated and makes it rich in many ways culturally, um, but it also makes it very complicated um, and, and very nuanced. Um, and to take it back to global tech firms, I think many times people think you can just come in here and do what you did in some other country, but it's just massively more complicated and complex than, than you would know until you're really here. That totally makes sense. Uh, what about from a journalism perspective? I mean, do you ever feel like, ooh, I, I, I've been here for a couple of years, but I will never really understand India the same way an Indian journalist would, would do, do so? I, I don't know. How, how do you feel like working there? <laughs> Yeah, I think that's I, well. I'm constantly uh, have to keep that in mind. You know that I did not grow up in this place. In some ways, I think it's helpful because I think I can divorce myself intellectually from some things that you might not examine otherwise if you just take it as the way it is. Just like any foreigner can come to America and question assumptions that people have with a fresh perspective. Um, Certainly, I I would say I'm lucky in that many people I talk to speak English because English is widely spoken here. And so I don't have a lot of the language barriers that I might have in another place where, um, you know, if you're not speaking um, as a native speaker with someone else in their language, it can be difficult. Um, But yeah, certainly. And I'm lucky that I have um, 
um, that I have, you know, very talented uh, colleagues from here who I collaborate with on a lot of my stories. Um, whether it's in helping me interview sometimes people on the street who don't speak English, my colleagues help me with that. Um, so I would say yes, but I would say also I would caution that there is sometimes this notion that unless you're from a place, you can't understand it. And I think that's a cop out. A lot of times people will say, well, you're not from X country. And so your opinion or your analysis is invalid. And, and that's false. You know, just mm -hmm. as you wouldn't say to someone from, uh, you know, from Japan, that they can't ever come to America and understand it and its history and observe and um, articulate what they're seeing, uh, because they're not American. That would be absurd. You, so you can't say Absolutely. just because someone is not native of a certain country that they're incapable intellectually or culturally of understanding a place. You may not understand it on the same level. Uh, and you may not have the language skills, but you can certainly read a lot and talk to a lot of people and understand in a way um, that be, that that is quite sophisticated and advanced um, and use that to communicate to people who don't know anything about it. And so um, I also want to throw that in there, too, that um, people should never feel like because a place is big and complex that it just – that it's useless. Don't you know? Don't give up. You have to still still learn and 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 um, and try your hardest. Uh, absolutely. I, I mean, I'm jealous. It just it seems that you're having such a a wonderful, fascinating learning experience. Also, I mean, from a personal perspective, to to be in a, a foreign country to do journalism work um, to do this kind of reporting and end up shaping the way uh, American readers would think about India just from your articles. And I think it's a powerful tool of journalism. It's a powerful mission you guys are, are, are on. I mean, it's, 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 it's amazing. Um, that, that's kind of my admiration for, for, for you guys. Well, thanks. I, it's a privilege, you know, to do what we do. Uh, you know, no profession is not, it's, it's ups and downs, but, um, but yeah, to be able to work for, uh, big news organization with a lot of resources and to be able to travel around and talk to people and um, think about how we can really bring value, you know, to our subscribers is a position that not many people are in. So I, um, I try not to take it for granted and, and try to always remind myself that um, I'm in a lucky position and um, it has been a fantastic experience. And uh, uh, yeah, continue learning more every day. Uh, but newly, do you have any contrarian views on India? I would love to hear your thoughts on how the country is is what what your prediction is for for the country in the next couple of years. Yeah, well, um, it's hard for me to get out of um, the bubble or the you know the place I'm in, and so I'm not sure how contrarian this view is. But I think a lot of people in the global, say, policy circuit would say, um, oh, well, of course, India is going to um, develop just like China has developed because they have over a billion people, mm. you know, people root for India. I think rightly so because it's a democracy and democracies do prove to be drivers of growth. Um, but I think many people take it for granted that because of India's demographics, because of its size, um, that it will follow a similar path and that it's essentially, uh, it can go on autopilot and develop into this big, you know, world economy and be a political leader. And um, I'm not saying that's not going to happen, but I'm saying, as I as I mentioned before, some of the um, troubling research about how um, India's poorest citizens have have are missing out. I would say that um, I think that it's important that India follow um, a, a you know 
a sort of prescriptive growth for economic development. Um, you know, whether it's manufacturing, land reform, um, some of the the well-worn policies that have worked in other countries. Um, I'm not sure you hear people talk about India going its own way and, and and developing in its own way, but there are there are paths that that work. And so um, I would say, if it's contrarian, I would just say that it's not a given that India is going to become uh, more powerful, more uh, economically uh, robust, that it needs to do certain things right. Um, and that, um, again, it's complicated. India is a complex place. And what works in some countries, um, you know, what worked in China might not work uh, in India for a variety of reasons. And it's not a given. Um, I want it to succeed. And I, and I, and I, and I think it will. But um, I think that um, we can't turn a blind eye to the economy as a whole and how all members of society are doing. Um, and so I would, um, I would just say to whatever extent is contrarian, um, you know, watch this space and, and hope for the best. But that um, economic development, just because of its size and its manpower and its brains, is not a given for India. I absolutely agree with you. And and just to back you up on on some of the data here, I I remember doing a little bit of data work over the summer, and um, it is so. Um, I did something basically mapping modeling India's uh, GDP per capita rate to to China's, and it seems that. Um, India's GDP per capita is around, you know, still 20 to 30 years behind China's level. And um, right. so India's GDP per capita reached China's level in 2002 by 2009. So it was like nine years behind. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. And then it reached China's 2002 level by 2014, um, 2004 mm -hmm. level by 2017. So, so it's been uh, on average 10, 15 years sort of behind China with, with regards to um, GDP per capita growth. Um, so, so it's highly uncertain whether we will see the outbreak in demand or this kind of boom in, in everything um, that we saw in China. So, so um, we are optimistic about India, and I think, uh, as you said, we, we rightly so to, to root for the country, but we also got to recognize there are very grave challenges that might very well uh, deviate us from the right track. Yeah. That's right. Um, That's right. Totally. Uh, well, newly, I, I, I know we're kind of running out of time here. I don't want to keep keep you. I, I know there's a lot of topics that we didn't get to touch on, but I think um, India is an evolving country, and we can make this an evolving conversation. It's it's great to have this check in with you about India's um, tech and business scene. We didn't get to touch on a lot of the politics stuff, but I think uh, it could be a later conversation, and we'll see how uh, the Citizenship uh, Amendment Act uh, play out, and, and uh, what are some of the antitrust uh, actions played out and regulations as well so i i think um we don't have to finish all the conversation today so that that also grants me solace <laughs> okay it sounds good tiger uh, again thanks so much for, for joining me today uh, because uh the name of our podcast is policy punchline i just really want to ask you at the end of our show uh what's the punchline here uh, for india for journalism uh for your personal journey for for anything well, I think I would just go back to what I said before. It's complicated. It's complex. <laughs> don't, don't think you've ever got anything figured out, whether it's India's economy or what global tech titans are doing here. It's uh, it's complex and complicated, and uh, uh, don't don't ever look for pat answers. <laughs> how about that? Well, I, I I don't know how you do it, Newly. It's it's, tr it's truly <laughs> impressive the 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 reporting, the perspectives you guys bring. Like I uh, look at India in very refreshed ways from all your reporting uh, every time. Yeah. 
Well, thanks, Tiger. And next time you're in town, uh, we'll definitely meet up. Uh, of course. Uh, and, and hopefully you'll come back uh, to New York or, or get a chance to come visit us in Princeton sometime soon as well. Yeah. Sounds great. Uh, Sounds great. Awesome. And so uh, this concludes this episode of um, uh, Policy Punch. I was just interviewing Newly Purnell. He is uh, the the Wall Street Journal India tech correspondent, tech and business correspondent in India. Um, he's based in New Delhi. He spent uh, three and a half years in India already. Before that, he was in Bangkok and Singapore. He's been in Asia since 2006, uh, has done a wide range of reporting. You guys should, um, our listeners should follow him on, on Twitter, annually, uh, annually, right? Just newly. Yeah, just N-E-W-L-E-Y. Uh-huh. Yes, and and he has a newsletter, which I, I read. Uh, it's it's newly.com slash newsletter uh, that you can subscribe. So uh, it'd be great if our listeners show a lot of support for the reporting done in India as well. Yeah. <laughs> Am I, am I giving those, all, all those information correctly, Newly? Sounds yeah, good. Yeah, that's, exact, that's exactly right. Awesome. Well, thank you again for talking to me. This is uh, such a wonderful conversation. Uh, hopefully, my, my we can all, all keep in touch and everything. Thanks so much. Uh, thanks, Tiger. I appreciate it. Uh, thanks for asking me on. And I think my AirPods are just dying, so you, you timed it perfectly. Perfect. Thank you so much, Newly. I'll, I'll see you around <laughs> okay. soon. Yeah. Okay. Take of care. Course. Thanks, Tiger. Bye-bye. Uh, and and this formally concludes our episode with with Newly. Uh, please follow us on iTunes, Spotify, uh, Twitter, uh, policypunchline.com. Uh, rate and review us. Uh, we would love to hear your thoughts as always. So this is 2020. We uh, hope to bring you a series of episodes on India. We have uh, Arvind Panagaria. He's a professor at uh, Columbia University. We have Frank Weisner, who is the uh, former ambassador from the U.S. to uh, India. We just interviewed Newly Purnell. So uh, hopefully we'll present you a, a series of very interesting dialogues. And I personally also did uh, some some uh, recording when I was in India for three weeks. I interviewed soldiers. I interviewed monks. Uh, so hopefully we'll combine a lot of those interesting conversations and present uh, to you some very interesting conversations uh, about India. So uh, following us, uh, and thank you so much for listening to Policy Punchline today. You've been listening to Policy Punchline, a podcast generously supported by the Julius Rabinowitz Center for Public Policy and Finance at Princeton University. We would also like to encourage you to follow other podcasts produced by Princeton University, such as Politics and Polls by the Woodrow Wilson School of Public and International Affairs. Policy Punchline is intended to be informational only and does not reflect nor represent the views of Princeton University or the Julius Rabinowitz Center for Public Policy and Finance. For more information on subscription, donation, volunteering, or contact, please visit policypunchline.com. Thank you again for listening.